0: podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree and ETS sponsor. My co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Also joining as co host in the studio today is Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at WisdomTree. Please note, I'm our representative of Foreside Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the office of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Interesting time, Professor. It's been a while since we've had a live show here and so it's <laughs> yeah. been a while since we got your pulse on the market. We've had a lot going on with the Fed. Um, really interesting time at the end of last year having Loretta Mester on the week of the, uh, the FOMC meeting. There's been a lot of back and forth. A lot has changed even there, um, but and I've, I've seen some of your outlook, you know, going into 2018, you were very subdued, and you know, a lot of people say very bullish, but you were subdued last year, and, and this year I saw some of your outlook. Um, but maybe you could sort of frame for us what you think is going on.
1: Yeah, well, remember with Loretta, I said I did think they made a mistake in, in raising it and that they probably weren't going to raise it again unless we see real strength in the economy. Um, and I think as we see... Uh, including Powell and the other fed members backtracking a bit and saying yes we're listening to markets yes we think we can pause for quite a while yes 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 <laughs> that has uh, been a a a change doesn't surprise me um because the other they they their quick studies they realized that maybe uh it, it wasn't so much the increase it was the hawkish tone of of that directive which uh, really set the market on the end but we now know that Powell and and they're going to be very flexible Um, I'll tell you that employment report a week ago today was unbelievably a blockbuster I mean it it was like the best of all worlds we we had a huge increase in the payroll but also which of course we've talked about so many times on our show uh, a rise in the participation rate so the unemployment rate actually rose which is a good thing because it means the labor markets are not as tight we actually had um, the um, uh, uh, participation rate uh, rise to a uh, the very uh, highest level in a five-year range if it goes up uh, this uh, month here that we're in in January actually will break out of that range this is really good news um, also jobless claims which spiked up at, in December. Um, and by the way, that's, that's data we are still getting. And um, uh, they're showing that there's no um, immediate fall-off of the, of the labor market. Uh, so uh, the, the real economic situation is still good. I've always said that estimates were too high in 2019 on earnings. And then I think on Christmas Eve, they went way too low. People were thinking of a recession. It's going to be a low single-digit earnings increase. But I think the big game changer is that the long bond, the 10-year, has dropped back under 270. Um, And the idea that it was just going to continue to rise and pressure the market now is, hey, you know what? If the Fed's not rising, there's no inflationary pressures, the 10-year won't rise This is a game-changer for the market, and as I said last year, it could lead to an outperformance of value stocks for the first time in several years uh, in the market.
0: Leeshawn, I know we were just talking about the Fed. You want to jump in here?
2: as someone who works at the Fed before, I think uh, for the Fed the best way is when you see something you know markets don't react, and maybe you know going forward, um, Fed will listen to Professor Siegel's advice and manage the expectation a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, they just, I, 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 they, they just didn't manage expectations right with the statement. The statement um, sort of implied, oh yeah, there's a little weakness here, but. We're still going to be on our path of tightening unless we see something really change, rather than um, we can pause and take a look at what four increases would do to the economy. And, um, you know, because those higher rates were beginning to pinch housing and sentiment and a lot of other things, that should have been the tone. We can can afford to pause. I think we wouldn't have seen the Christmas sell-off had they put the tone different. So it's a matter of communications. Um, uh, you know, uh, this happens very often in, in the case of a, of a new chairman. It's um, there's there's a little bit of uh, you know roughage over there that they they have to smooth out. But I think that they got the message. And um, uh, I think now the market is is got to deal with a, a slower economy this first quarter. Most of the estimates I have are under two. Now don't forget we have the. Federal government shutdown, which uh, you know it could lower this GDP if it lasts this whole month, of um, a whole percentage point. I, I see estimates under two percent for the first quarter. Uh, so we're going to have a slowdown, but I think at the end of the month if we get GDP. As long as the slowdown doesn't affect that, The thing we're going to show a near three percent in the fourth quarter. But most important, we're going to show 2018. Uh, is going to be an over 3% uh, growth rate, which is the fastest growth rate since the financial crisis, which really, you know, is, is, uh, is something I think, uh, is, is a very positive feature. So, yes, things are slower going forward, but no, things are not falling apart. Uh, by any means, Professor.
0: I sent you one a uh, piece of research I saw this morning from somebody who's a former Fed uh, participant in Dallas, Danielle Di Booth, who who wrote a little bit about the quantitative tightening. And she talked about well, there's going to be 200 billion in liquidity coming out from the reducing of the balance sheet every four months, um, which is you know about 600 billion for the year. Um, and she she called that one hike a quarter. Um, that is sort of equivalent just the the Q t program, and uh, I mean any any thoughts on whether this balance sheet now of course they could adjust the balance sheet and, and perhaps they walk back their comments on where they are in the balance sheet. but any thoughts on that
1: yeah, I, I do, and there 's been a lot of talk about uh, this liquidity um, uh, going out. Um, my feeling is that this liquidity going out will not have much of an effect. Uh, as long as we see the Fed funds rate uh, tight against the interest on reserves, which is now 2.40%. In other words, we, there will only be a scarcity of reserves when the reserve rate goes above the interest rate that they're paying on those reserves. And people are saying, I'm, you know, I need them. I'm going to scramble. I'll pay higher. We see none of that. So, uh, you know, the fact is, yes. They're, they're losing some of the reserves, but actually they're buying back the treasuries that are being sold by the Fed. So they're just substituting a government bond for the reserves that they have. And I don't think that that's going to really be a, a major tightening factor uh, uh in that. And I think the Fed is conscious. If they begin to see tightness in that market and they say, oh, my God, federal funds rates rising above that 240 that we're paying on reserves, then they've got to really pay attention. But as long as that stays tight against it, and I keep it right on my screen here, um, I don't think it's going to have much of it. Rates is the most important thing. Um, And don't forget, for 95 years of the Fed's existence, banks were super tight on their reserves, up against the absolute minimums and of course only in this the, in this new regime had they got uh, more than extra so we know how to op- they know how to operate in a in a world where the excess reserves aren't in the trillions which of course is what they uh eventually got to in the quantitative easing program
0: very good and so you know the the market had their Dece- the december swoon the start of uh 2019 so far um pretty good year so
1: far yeah but- i well i said you know, and I was asked at the end of December. I said I thought this was a plus five to plus fifteen percent year. Um, I guess we've already had a five on it uh, so far from uh, just about from year end. We're almost up ten percent from that swoon on Christmas Eve. But um, uh, you know, when I see if I you know you you know, I take a look at that ten year, I see that's solidly below three percent. And I would say, you know, with a sixteen PE ratio. I mean, I show a chart in my in my presentations that the median PE over the last seventy years for the S and P is seventeen point one. We're at sixteen now in a low interest rate environment. I think that's value, uh, and particularly value in a world where the Fed is not going to be, uh, you know, raising anytime soon.
0: Very good. Thanks for uh, giving us your your outlook. Great to have you back in twenty nineteen. And uh, thanks. We'll see you next week. Th- thank you. So Li Chen, uh, um, just uh, you know, one of the big stories and one of the conversations we're going to keep coming back to over the course of time is the dynamic with China. And certainly, if last year the professor talked about interest rates in China being the key story, um, right now the interest rates were in pause mode. But China is front and center. They're trying to work out this trade deal, and I don't know. Next week we're going to have a, a very interesting guest on that topic. Um, what what's your what are some of the big you know, we're coming up on the Chinese New Year a little bit later. Um, what Tell us a little bit what you see going on in China.
2: Um, so, February 5th, uh, it's coming up Chinese New Year. Uh, let's talk a little bit fun facts in China. I think one of the things that's not um, not being uh, heard about uh, in the U.S. about China is that actually one of the biggest uh, worry in China, ordinary people, was the population growth. So China you know it's most populous country and but because of the two, uh two child uh, poli- uh, the one child policy it has been uh the child the child per woman rate has been following has been very low some some say it's closer to you know 1.2 1.4 depends on uh the estimates um so in the last year at the end of year there was a huge discussion in China uh among, both in social media and also within, you know, within the governments that, um, you know, we changed from the one child policy to two two child policy last year. Actually, if you look at the stamp that uh, China released for year of dog last, uh, this year, or 2018, is, it's about a mother dog, you know, loving, looking lovingly of a little uh, puppy. And this year was a new numbers coming out where the population didn't really grow. So the next year, 2019, which is the year of pig. And, uh, I think Jeremy, you're going to tweet about that picture, but because the picture is going to show that, uh, it's a couple with three kids. So three little pigs, uh, for, for Chinese, um, Yellow pick. So I think that shows how much uh, of a concern in terms of population. Um, that it's really a mentality. It, it's the idea of you know the country can it grow economically if you cannot even you know have your kids grow up and you know have a, have a big family since family is such a a big part of China's uh, mentality.
0: So do you think people will respond? Is that or do these stamps and the the outlook is that is that going to have an influence on your friends?
2: Um, Probably not as much as the government uh, wanted. I think they probably have to really be convinced that, that they need to scrap the whole population control policy and actually go for uh, other policies to encourage birth. So this year, there's some changes in tax policy, which will in the U.S. if you have kids, you have get some credit. In the old days in China, if you have a kid, you'll be fined. Mm. But I think there will be shifts coming that way. Um so it will be interesting to see. But that is something which in the U.S. Have, haven't have really reported much on China. Uh, the second thing was also that uh, in Chinese media, there was actually a lot of uh, kind of a goodwill toward these trade disputes, which I think in the U.S. media has uh, overlooked a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, We're going to talk about that in detail next week. On, on China generally, you know, we, Trump was going hard because he could say, look, it's impacting their markets, not our markets. That sort of reversed in in December. Um, but China's A shares, the the local market was down like 25% last year. Do you have a view on is this year going to be better than last? Do you have any sense of, of – is, is EM and China sort of one of the opportunities? I mean the valuations, when I look around the world, certainly valuations on emerging market indexes we track. We can find – nine times earnings on a lot of these emerging market type indexes. And it, and so if you, when we looked at it, you know, we look at it as, man, it's beaten down. The question is, can you get bullish on without a trade deal? And so then you don't know, is the trade deal going to come in Q1, Q2? Um, but certainly the valuations are there.
2: Yeah, so that, you know, my friends ask me about this. Um, the way I think of China's equity market is that it's a policy-driven market. So fundamentals play slightly less View so uh, less than a policy. If the government wants the equity market to do well, they will they will have policies to make it, uh, you know, to make it better. And the other thing is that uh, we've talked a little bit. Sometimes a GDP growth and stock market return can uh, have a disjoint. relationship. So one, one thing you mentioned before was, you know, in China and, and Brazil, the stock market in Brazil has done much better than China, even though in growth in China has, you know, been, uh, many years better than Brazil. In the developed market, one country I usually think is UK. UK and US are uh, generally has similar, um, stock market return, but the growth in the US has been better. So I, I think in China, if the economic growth, the benefits of it, goes to the non-public portion of the of the of the investors, or of or, or, or in that way, the market is still going to be um, still going to be you know depressed a little. But I think a deal could definitely help because uh, the market was down because of this uh, sudden um, realization realization in China that U.S could potentially be unfriendly.
0: Yeah. Now, before I turn to our guests, one other uh, thing just to, to start the year. you Every January, early January, there's this uh, important economic conference that you came back from down in Atlanta. Um, any insights or, or sort of interesting papers that you came across that you wanted to, to highlight for, for people?
2: Sure. Yeah. So just quick word on the conference. Every year, the first weekend of January, the American Economic Association uh, has a joint conference with, with the American Finance Association in usually one of the big cities. So this year it's in Atlanta. Uh, usually it's in the cold cities, but next year it's actually in San Diego. It's a conference with close to 8,000 people attending. And actually the Fed president's you know the 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 conversations that moved the market uh 3% that year uh, that day uh friday was um in atlanta so they bring um uh, uh, high Powell profile Bernanke, yellen
0: they were yeah, all there on yeah, one yeah they panel. were on
2: there in the panel. Uh, i actually skipped it I, I because for that you can look on the website and look it back back later i was not um I was, I was not expecting that to move the market so much. So I actually went to the other sessions where the other sessions are not taped. And usually you got more out of those sessions by going to the conference and uh, attending. It's also uh, one of really, really low cost uh, conference. So anybody has interest in beginning of January, they should check it out. Um, so in the conference, one of the, a couple of things about that I, I like is that, um, if you think about stock return, most of the time we concern about the one company you look at the balance sheets of of the company you look at the company's return in the nec- in the last six months or twelve months but there has been a shift in academic research toward looking at stocks through the relationship of different companies so the links between companies either through trading link or ownership link or just a geographic mm. link so for example uh there's a paper. Which which is um quickly the the paper it 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 talks about um, the one hundred or fifty uh, biggest stocks in the U.S. Um, could impact the other the other companies that has a similar geogra- geographic geographic. Uh, profile or similar product profile so this area there has been a lot of uh, research coming out in terms of this network of mm-hmm. looking at the companies you know versus their suppliers or versus you know the same kind of category through either through patents if they share the same patents um the there's a professor um Professor Lee at Stanford, who wrote a paper about the technol- technology link between pr- between companies, I think this is an area where has been substantial um, uh, paper, like a good papers coming out.
0: Well, that makes sense. I mean, you see Apple report earnings, and they show Apple suppliers uh, also either trading or going into, in in with it. So that, that makes sense that there's going to be more research around that concept of how things can predict, or you know, maybe other related, uh, related movements there. Let me bring in our guest. Um, we're going to be talking for the remainder of the show, Michael Oyster. He's out with a a new book. Um, he's, he's based here in Cincinnati, um, but his new book is called Success in a Low-Return World Using Risk Management and Behavioral Finance to Achieve Market Outperformance. I got to know Michael uh, through his uh, being CIO at the FEG Consulting Group. Um, Mel- Michael, welcome to our program. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about um, you know your career, what and and the book that you what got you to write your your new book.
3: Sure, yeah. So this is actually my second book. Uh, first one came out and it was published in two thousand five. So it's not something that I do a lot of. But um, this time it was um, a confluence of a number of different things that I was looking at and thought, boy, uh, we're in a transitional period and there's going to be some be some real challenges ahead might be good for you know to get some ideas out there on how to address those challenges, open up the world to you know what kinds of things are going on and what things might happen in the future. Uh, for my background I, I got out of college in 1993, started working for a derivative space shop doing quantitative research and uh, analysis of behavioral biases and things. And then I moved to like you say FEG in 1999 and did a lot of manager investment manager research for them uh, more quantitative work for them, and and just really uh, covered the gamut, doing all kinds of ind- independent research and everything. In 2005, when my first book came out, it was following uh, a period when I had just passed the CFA exam, and as you know, that is no small task. So my CIO at the time said, "Use that time that you've spent studying for the CIO or for the CFA in a productive way." So I had all these thoughts rolling around in my head that I can harken back to. Uh, the work I was doing in my first life and then the institutional work I was doing with FEG and it all came together. And then more recently, looking at the world that, you know, Professor Siegel was talking about and what I've heard him talk about and what you and I have talked about over the years. Um, it's a really inter- interesting transition and one that is an inflection point, unlike pretty much anything else that we've seen, um, except for a couple times going back, you know, 100 years or so. It's a really interesting time. So I thought I would put together some of these thoughts and get them out there.
0: So the the main title of the book is is low return world, and uh, you know, a lot of work on what why we might be in a low return world. But if you sort of frame for people your your frame of reference, how you're what's suggesting? Um, certainly, you know the the people who you come across who are the most bearish on the market are certainly looking at things like the cape ratio, which shows very elevated valuations um, compared to long term averages. And Professor Siegel comes back with all his reasons why. You think some of that's justified some of the different issues um, but what what's your is it a cape ratio argument or or how are you about to think about this differently
3: it's really in two parts so I would say yes I look at the cape yes I don't have perfect agreement with professor Siegel and I, I talk about that in the book yeah he actually has a really good um, retort to that he thinks that the, the ratio should include national income and product account data in the uh, the earnings side of that ratio which is a which is a good argument now it's still elevated. But really, the difference between what he mentioned in his comments, which is, you know, the price earnings multiple today seems fairly valued or maybe even undervalued versus what the Shiller PE or the cyclically adjusted price earnings multiple is today, which is 28.4, and that's in the top 6% all time going back to the late 1800s, the difference between those two. So people throw out price earnings ratio all the time, and there's differences between different price earnings ratios. Price to forward one-year earnings is maybe a better short-term indicator where, the Schiller PE uh, or CAPE is a really good long term indicator. So when I'm talking about it and I'm saying it's elevated, it's not because I think the stock market is, you know, going to be shaky for the next twelve months. It's really a, a statement about what we're looking out over the course of the next decade. And that's only one argument. And I mean one of the you mentioned Professor Schiller's Uh, comments around the cape and i've seen um, a number of them and read it in his his papers and so forth one of the ones that really stood out to me and it's 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 one that i love to hear and love to talk to people about is he says that the returns of the stock market have exceeded the forecasts of the shiller p.e. 98 percent of the time since 1981 so i looked at that and i thought boy why would we even use this thing if the returns are actually almost always better Well, the one thing that stood out in that comment was he started that research, or that, that data goes back to 1981. Well, I have no idea why he chose 1981, but I do know something very important happened in 1981, and that is the peak of interest rates when Paul Volcker had, risen, had, had driven the Fed funds rate all the way above 19 in June and July of 1981. Over the subsequent 32 years since then, through 2000, well, I think the bottom was reached in, what, 2013, interest rates went down. And it was a you know a protracted, uh, systemic declining interest rate environment. And there's nothing that's better for the stock market than declining interest rates. But I'm not suggesting that interest rates are going to rocket higher from here. But the reality is is that we're not going to see a 19 percentage point decline in interest rates anytime soon. So in the absence of that, that tailwind for the stock market not being there anymore, that's a real primary reason why I think we don't see 15 or 17 percent returns. And I don't even think we see Ten percent returns over the course of the next decade, which is the long-term average. I think more likely, we're looking at about five to seven percent return for the next decade.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's. A, I know one of the it's an interesting confluence of like when did firms, you know, what what what? How do you choose time periods? Um, and so there, there that was part of the start of the big bull market. I think that's partly you know the 1982 bull market that started for a while. Right. Um, I, it was also corresponding with the peak in dividend yields. So one of his critiques is. That um, well certainly as firms went from doing a lot of d- uh, returning a majority of their cash out through dividends, they started doing a lot more buybacks. That really accelerated accelerated in the '90s with some different executive compensation rules that really started doing sure. stock options. That when you start doing stock options, you don't want to pay a dividend. You start doing buybacks, and so that was one of the things that really accelerated it. So that was like t- ten years later. But that I think it's it the dividend yield difference also is part of his argument that future earnings growth is likely to be higher when you do these these dividend yield adjusted capes and even Bob um, when you talk to Schiller would say he agrees on this idea of the total return caping in many ways um, something he starts started looking at more closer than just the standard cape in in different indexes he's created so it's it, there's a lot of there's a lot going on, on why you would choose the time period
3: no question about it and, and all those criticisms are good and I think it's healthy for the academic debate to have that but let me let me give you another little bit of data here. So from January 1928 through September 1981, which again was the peak in interest rates, the U.S. stock market advanced 7.8 percent per year annualized. um, And that was beating inflation by 4.6 percent. So that's about right. You know, you should be able to um, justify an investment in stocks and the risk you have to take to get that uh, by outperforming inflation by 4 or 5%. That's about right. So from September 1981, when interest rates peaked and started to decline until June of last year, almost 37 years, the annualized return of the stock market was 11.8%, which was above long-term averages, and it beat inflation by 9 percentage points annualized. So another point that I look at is that, is that sustainable? Should the stock market, should the equity risk premium be so vast as to outperform inflation, outperform the risk-free rate by 9%, 10%, or or pick a number. And I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's going to be zero, but I do think that it's lower than what people have experienced in the last few years, and I think that's important to get that message out.
0: Very good. And so, when when you say if if you if we were to pin you down on now you know the just a lower return world um, that is true in equities, we'd say it's it's certainly much more true even in bonds when you compare the long term average returns in and uh you go back to Siegel's 200 years of data he had a three and a half percent real return on bonds and you look at right. what can you get in bond returns today um and you know it's pretty transparent what the tips yield is you can lock in your bond yields and i'm just looking at my screen and the 10-year tips is is 87 basis points so you say there you go. do you have a do you think um the bond returns are going to be lower than historical versus the equities do you have a feeling which one is going to be more more worse <laughs> uh,
3: i think it's Equally worse. Okay. <laughs> I think we're in an environment, and I mean, look—it's—it's a—it's pretty easy to project uh, future total return from fixed income, or at least estimate it, because as Professor Siegel just pointed out, the ten-year yield is now below two point seven. If you looked out and said, "I need to know what I'm going to get from this investment over the course of the next decade," two point seven percent is probably about what you're going to get, and that's really low historically. So the combination, and this is something that a lot of institutional investors are looking at, the combination of traditional. Long-only equities and core fixed income are projecting a lower expected return than virtually any other time in history. So it's, it could be challenging for both stocks and bonds.
0: So Lucina, did you, uh, you have any thoughts on the on future versus past returns? I know you were talking about it a little bit before.
2: Yeah, so uh, this is Lee Chang. I just want to be the devil's adv- advocate here. Uh, so in terms of um, since the world, you know, becoming more integrated and then emerging market international, uh, it, it usually when I think return is lower. So are you saying that in general, just the world, even in the GDP point of view, that the growth will be lower in the next decades?
3: One of the things that I run into when I talk to people about this is that I oftentimes forget to mention that my comments are couched just in large cap domestic equities in the United States. Um, I will grant you that expected returns from emerging markets, for example, would be much higher in my view, other parts of the world. And in terms of integration, yeah, I mean, there's building blocks of equity returns and earnings growth is one of them. If for some reason, because of Um, You know, economic growth in the developing world, demographic, um, you know, advancements in the developing world that all end up through connections back to the United States produce a higher um, GDP growth and then ultimately higher earnings growth. That can improve returns, and then my expectations of five to seven percent would need to be adjusted upward accordingly. So I think that's a good
0: point. You spent a lot of time as CIO of a very large consultant, so maybe you could talk us through how you sort of think about managing portfolios and how you use, you know, how you would given this view on on low returns, um, sort of just how that adapts your, your your framework and how you think about asset allocation.
3: Right. So it's it's two parts, right? So the first part is just recognition awareness hey, you know what, we have to be realistic about our expected returns for the future.
0: It's it's interesting. I mean, Leach, one of the big dynamics when you have a stock bond allocation, if you think the stock return is going to be lower, how much how much do you increase?
3: So, yeah, from an institutional investment portfolio standpoint, I think recognition that future returns probably aren't going to be as good Uh, as they have, and you've got to build that into an asset allocation model to take that into consideration. So awareness is very important from the beginning. Um, And then, you know, with institutional clients, they're perpetual, they're going to be around forever. So we have to think very long term, Uh, it's important to try to not make decisions for the next 12 months, the next 36 months, but really looking out over a long period of time. So that's where a lot of these projections come in. But there are things to do. And that's what I really wanted to outline in the book is There's a lot of really good investment opportunities for people that, you know, don't involve traditional stock picking that can give you the opportunity to outperform. And I spent more than half the book outlining those things. You know, there's a lot of really great ideas out there that I wanted to make sure I got out there.
0: Yeah, and you talk about a lot of different ways of managing different sleeves, um, and, and so the people can get the book and sort of look through you and read through all of it. Where, where would you say of your core philosophy, how do really, because you talk about market outperformance, um, and so there's obviously a whole big debate. You're not just saying buy beta, buy the lowest cost index. You're trying to achieve outperformance. Talk about where, what, what you see the state of outperformance, the active versus passive, the sort of smart beta indexing. What, what's your general, your general take?
3: Sure. So yeah, the, the, the first answer to that is um, to achieve outperformance or to give us a chance for outperformance, let's try to avoid underperformance. So what can we avoid um, that can put an inhibiting factor on the total return of the portfolio? I spend a fair amount of time talking about how difficult it is. So for example, if you were to ask the average person, and I haven't done this, but you could ask the average person, okay, I need to find outperformance of the stock market. How do I do that? Well, the answer might be, well, you need to pick the stocks that are going to outperform and avoid the ones that are going to underperform, you know, active management. Um, unfortunately, that's really hard to do because there are a lot of really smart, dedicated people with access to good information that spend all day, every day trying to do that exact thing. And when they fight against each other, it makes the markets very efficient. And we know about market efficiency, going back to Professor Fama's early work on the subject for which you want to Nobel Prize, and it's it's true. Markets are very efficient, so it's very difficult to outperform either by trying to pick stocks yourself or hiring somebody to pick stocks. So, real quick, I'm I'm, I'm I want to read something to you because this blew me away when I read it, and has to do with the fundamental analysis that a lot of stock pickers use. So, the father of fundamental analysis, right, Benjamin Graham. We all read his book in college, um, you know, looking at fundamental analysis and. Uh, How do we dig through company balance sheets? It's what we learned when we took the CFA and all of that stuff. So in 1976, Charles Ellis was interviewing Benjamin Graham, the father of stock selection and and security analysis. And, And Ellis asked him, and this is, quote, in selecting the common stock portfolio, do you advise careful study of and selectivity among different issues? And that's the end of Ellis's quote or his question. And then Benjamin Graham responded, which was kind of surprising. And he said, in general, no. I am no longer an advocate of elaborate techniques of security analysis in order to find superior value opportunities. This was a rewarding activity, say, 40 years ago when our Graham and Dodd textbook was first published, but in the situation has changed since then. To that very limited extent, I'm on the side of the efficient market school of thought, now generally accepted by the professors. So if if Benjamin Graham himself says that using fundamental analysis to seek out performance is not the greatest idea – you know, I, I don't think that I would be an advocate of it either. So, and it's very challenging. Markets are very efficient. And again, we're talking about large cap domestic equity. I will grant you that less efficient markets like private markets, like international markets, emerging markets, frontier, all of those would be more fertile opportunities for security selection to, to achieve outperformance. But, you know, there are, are things that you can do. I spend a fair amount of time talking about smart beta. I think it's a, it's a really terrific idea. Um, and, and then I have a little fun with it because, you know, two of the stalwarts in Smart Beta are Rob Arnott from Research Affiliates and then AQR's founder, Cliff Asnes, and they've had this rivalry going back that, that many of us are familiar with, and it's kind of funny, and I talk about some of the things that they have said to each other and, and just the, the academic sparring that goes on. But I do think that that um, portable or excuse me that, um, Smart Beta is a really good strategy. The question I think we have to ask about Smart Beta and, and to be intellectually honest is – has it failed to, dis- to survive discovery? And what I mean by that is when you have so much money chasing the same kinds of things, do you dilute the opportunity for everyone? And there's a history of that occurring in markets going back over 100 years, starting with um, you know, the fundamental analysis to begin with. Fundamental analysis, as Benjamin Graham described it, is brilliant. And it, it really works well until everybody starts doing the same thing. And there's a lot of examples of that. Is smart beta another example of that? Well, my personal opinion is no, not yet. Uh, it's cyclical. Those styles are cyclical. You know, Professor Siegel talked about value maybe coming back in favor. That's a big one of those factors that go into smart beta strategies. And if that's the case, I think you'll start to see a little bit better performance from that. But uh, it certainly has been out of favor. I don't think that it should be abandoned. Um, but I do think that's a way to achieve outperformance is smart beta. I think that's a good idea.
2: I'm a little bit surprised that Wisdom Tree is not on your list when you mention uh smart beta because it has been doing smart beta before, um it with real money for the last twelve years. Look,
0: look yeah, at my Vanguard sure, well. Vanguard person here coming in strong on Wisdom Tree. <laughs>
3: I uh, I did mention Professor Siegel's groundbreaking research. He was a pioneer in the book. I do I do talk about his work on dividends and um, do mention that he was among the, the early adopters of that kind of strategy in the fundamental world.
0: We change aggressive here. Um, so Michael, when, when you think we're, we're talking with Michael Oster, who's the author of Success in a Low Return World? Your people are listening here to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM One Thirty Two, and. You know, the there's a lot of different things you you, you um, talk about in terms of behavioral finance, but you also had an interesting chapter on decision-making and using intuition. Do you want to give us a, a little bit of background on uh, sure. the chapter you have on, on intuition?
3: Yeah, this came about in a, a sort of a strange way. My wife, who is a writer, had encouraged me for many years to write a second book. And when I finally entered the agreement with the publishing company, um, she said, you know what you need to include in your investment-related book is a chapter on intuition and my my initial thought was i don't know i mean i'm i'm kind of a stats oriented guy i mean i look at it this way if i'm going to enter the dark unknown that follows an investment decision i'd rather be holding the hand of a little bit of statistical significance if you know what i mean uh, as opposed to you know my gut feel but she kept persisting and i said listen finally if you if you want to have something about intuition in the book why don't you write a chapter and we'll put it in and I thought that'd be the end of it, and I, I wouldn't hear about it again, but sure enough, she did the research, she wrote the chapter, it ended up being terrific, and it's, uh, it's really well done. She talks about practical in- intuition, which is the idea that listening to what your gut is telling you can actually help guide decision-making. And the work that she did leading up to writing the chapter included all this empirical evidence and, and academic research that I didn't even know was going on on the subject of intuition. It goes all the way back to Plato, um, so it's just a really interesting addition to the investment narrative in the book to think about intuition, and one of the quotes that that she included in her chapter I think is really great. It's from Albert Einstein, of all people, and he said, "...the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift." And I think there's some truth in that. So you know that that became an interesting kind of interlude between the first and second half of the book talking about intuition i I think it's worth a read um
0: so when you, maybe you can talk a little bit about your frameworks um I mean just sort of the the business uh as a consultant um you know there's there's Maybe sure talk about just the consulting roles and and how you see that evolving. How how institutions are using consultants, how and just where you see the whole asset management industry. As people try to you know if if it's a low return world, they're going to reevaluate everything that they're doing, including uh, in consuming consultants, I assume. So just give us your big picture worldview there on on that that industry.
3: Yeah, we could spend an hour on this, Jeremy. There's there's a lot to to get with there. I would say in asset management world, one of the trends that's undeniable you know it crosses all boundaries is fee compression i mean we're seeing some mutual some index funds available for zero fee now uh the trend has definitely been lower in traditional long-only equities it's also been true in hedge funds we've seen a fair amount of fee compression in hedge funds there i think that will continue um and i think we're 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 seeing the beginnings of bifurcation between alpha and beta and what i mean by that is is that you can get beta or you know the basic stock market return for virtually nothing, but where alpha, true outperformance, true differentiated outperformance is going to be available, that's going to be worth paying for. Um, So one of the areas that I mentioned as an opportunity for outperformance is managers who build investment portfolios that exhibit high active share. And what that means is that the portfolio of stocks that they hold looks a lot different than the index. And there's been research to suggest that high active share portfolios tend to outperform the market with a higher degree of uh, consistency. So I think there's there's a reason to believe that that kind of strategy will be worth paying for. But what you can get by, you know, just being part of the market shouldn't be something you should spend a lot of money on. In terms of the consulting business, I think that's evolving, too. I've seen uh, and, and others have seen a high degree of uh, acceptance of what they call outsourced CIO. Um, which is something that I think is a really good thing because historically you've got an institutional um, portfolio that's managed by a group of call it seven to 10 volunteers who meet once every three months and then make decisions on billions of dollars of investment capital. That just doesn't make a great deal of sense. What does make more sense is the idea that you've got an expert who doesn't necessarily sit on staff, but is is a paid advocate and extension of staff where um They are, in turn, managing the portfolio, and they've got day-to-day oversight of it. I think that's a trend that we're seeing in the consulting business That's, that's a good one, and it probably will continue.
0: How do you think about the now? There's the whole asset allocation versus manager selection, and for a lot of these OCIO models, I mean, how much value do you put in? You know, and then there's all these famous studies on well, not you know, not, there's ninety percent of the variance of the returns will be dictated by asset allocation versus you know, can you add value through the through the stock selection or the security selection? Where does where do you come down on how much you'd want to try to achieve through asset allocation versus manager selection?
3: Sure, yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I, I in- include a couple of those studies. In the book as well, asset allocation is certainly the primary driver of returns. Um, manager selection uh, is secondary, but it depends on the asset category. So, for one uh, area that I talk about in the book as an opportunity to outperform, I talk about um, um, uh, talk about um, private equity. Gosh. So private equity obviously gives an investor an opportunity to outperform, but manager selection is critical. If you look at a group of uh, private equity managers and you parse them out by quartile in terms of performance there's about ten percentage points of return difference between the top quartile manager and the bottom quartile manager. In some studies there's even more. So the difference between getting a good manager in private equity and, and um you know an average manager can make a big difference. So manager selection is very important there. Whereas in you know the area that I focus in on the book mostly, uh which is large cap US equity, the difference is very small, maybe you know, two percentage points. So you know, manager selection is less important there. So I think it's one of those, it depends. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that that I found interesting as I was doing research for the book is looking into how different institutions think about asset allocation. So Yale, obviously, is is highly diverse with their Um, Yale model or or endowment model, Uh, they have a lot of private capital in there, whereas uh, Norway, for example, they just sort of have this static asset allocation, stick to it and, and do everything for low cost. Harvard has a slightly different model, which I found really interesting, which is they decided, look, we can't add any value through asset allocation. We're going to take that decision off the table completely. We are going to focus all of our attention on selecting the best managers because that's where they think that they have a competitive advantage. So when they spend their time and their effort and their risk budget toward things that they actually have an advantage on, they think that that can add value for their endowment over time, and it's it's working for them.
0: Now, um, when, when you think about where, uh, you know, the sort of the title of the book, again, sort of success in a low-return world, there's a lot of different types of strategies people, you know, try to employ to, to achieve, you know, say lower volatility, but in this sort of low return world, you have, if you have high volatility and low returns, it's, it's another really bad scenario. You also talk about different unique uh, strategies in that kind of volatility regime. Do you want to sort of talk through things like the 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 buy right index and put right indexes that you guys have that you've written about in, in that uh, in that section? Sure.
3: Yeah. So with a with a background in derivatives, it gives me kind of a unique vantage point um, from an asset allocation standpoint. I'm pay very close attention to and have done a lot of research on a variety of indexes that are built from those kinds of things. So buy right, put right, um, and there's a lot to like there. Um, The volatility risk premium um, is a premium that I think is not well understood and it's not um, commonly monetized as well as it could be, uh, where some of these other kinds of indexes exhibit characteristics where you you can actually tap into that and they can be really powerful, especially when returns aren't very high. Um, So here, for example, the uh, CBOE Buy Right Index uh, has data going back to 1990. Since then, there have been 11 years where the S&P 500 has failed to achieve a 10% return, so negative years and and single-digit years. In those 11 years, the buy right strategy outperformed the S&P 500 10 out of 11 times so, and that's that's pretty powerful if you believe what I do, which is the stock market's probably only good for 5 to 7% a year. You know, this is something that might be a good addition to the portfolio. The other one that I think is even more powerful is is represented by the CBOE put right index and I don't work for CBOE. I just I think it's a great a great concept. Um, the CBOE put right index um, also outperforms when the S&P 500 doesn't do as well as it has historically. And of those 11 years where the S&P didn't get to 10%, the put-right index outperformed every single time. So it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about uh, in the environment that we have today. If returns are low, let's find stuff that does well in a low-return world. And those are two really cool strategies to do. And then the final thing that I, I wrap the book up with is a, is a concept called portable alpha, and portable alpha is is kind of wonky you would have to if you don't know if you're not familiar with it you could look it up and, and see what it talks about but it's a stra- it's it's a concept that a lot of people were using prior to the financial crisis and then when 2008 happened it just it just really went bad but the concept itself isn't bad it's how it's applied that has been bad um, and I talk about a few ways like if we're in a low return world we've got to be thoughtful and creative about ways of finding out performance and I do believe Portable Alpha uh, is, has some potential there
0: let me let me um stick with the the since the, the low return world environment is one of those that where you say these these sort of put writing or buy writing strategies uh, or indexes are are really what you know when you would say when when you believe your upside is limited that's the kind of thing you want to want to do um but it's also like spikes in volatility can be harmful so like last year it was a low return world but uh you sort of had low low volatility which made it even a challenging year. I mean any any sense on um, just how you frame when so certainly if if you don't believe the market's going to get to 10%, that's one of the ways to think about it, but any other ways of thinking about the the return environments that that is w- where what you want to do is a a put, buy right strategy.
3: Sure, yeah. And and let's talk about the put right strategy because I think it's it's a little easier to wrap your head around at least for me. Um, so you're selling puts at the money, right? At the same level as the index. And when volatility spikes, that means the index is going down. So the value of those puts goes up, meaning that you have to buy them back at a higher level. So it can be an initial stress. But the beauty of that strategy is that once the index, the S&P 500, for example, has declined, now volatility pricing is higher. So the income generated from selling those puts is increased as well. So you can look at the data going back to 1990, and it's very clear that that strategy during periods of market stress, when the stock market is going down, it tends to hold up a lot better than the stock market itself. It does provide an important level of risk protection just for that very reason that when the market starts to move down and volatility pricing moves up, the monetization of that volatility becomes more fruitful, becomes more valuable, and that helps mitigate the returns on the downside. So it it is, you know, you can look at it from long-term and say, you know, if returns aren't that great in general, that's kind of a, um, you know, a long-term comment, but over near-term, you know, and you can look at the at the returns on a day-to-day basis and see this happening where it does buffer against the downside move when the stock market starts to go down.
0: Um, and so on, on, on portable alpha, which you mentioned is one of the areas, I mean, do you want to, in our sort of final three to four minutes, but um, I mean, that certainly is one of those institutional, you would say, you know, the consulting community likes these kind of things. Any any sense of the, you know, the adoption among institutional clients? Like what, what, how, do you, how do you see that going forward?
3: Yeah, and that's, that's why I included it, because I don't think it's as widely adopted as, adopted as it should be. And there's a couple really important reasons. It's one, if you don't put it together correctly, like a lot of people didn't in 2006 and 2007, it can be really problematic. I mean, by definition, and this is a word that I hope you're sitting down and, and your listeners are as well, it, it incorporates leverage. Now, leverage. what you want to leverage, yeah, it, so. Well, sorry, go ahead. keep going. No, I was just gonna say, that it, it technically does have leverage, but the idea is, is that if you can replicate the stock market for next to nothing and use whatever your mandate, you know, your amount of money is to invest in something else, and then merge the two together, if the something else performs better than the cost of replicating the index, you've outperformed the index. And that's a really great idea. The problem is is that when the index goes down, you're losing value on one side, you can't lose value on the other side. So whatever it is you're investing in on the other side can't have any positive correlation to whatever you're replicating on the index side, if that makes sense. So that's where a lot of like hedge funds in you know 2008 that had never lost money, uh, suddenly lost money in 2008. They were the alpha source of affordable alpha and ended up not being very good. But you know I do believe that at some point there should be and could be You know, more broadly distributable solutions that incorporate portable alpha because I do think it's a good idea. And I think a lot of people will, will look at that and say, hmm, I'd like to have some of this. How do I do it? And then demand will create the opportunity.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting about what you have faith in and confidence in and going back to, you know, where can you get active sources of return that will add value consistently? And, and then what do you do to port that on top of some other strategy? Uh, we know we had right. a, one of our podcasts uh, last year talking about portable beta and sort of porting equity and bond-like returns together with, with Corey Hofstein. We had an interesting conversation for people who want to listen back to another conversation on a, on a related topic Um so, you know, in our final final minute, any other things people to track your book or any other things uh, you want to point people to in our final minute here?
3: Um, sure. I would say, you know, just past is not prologue, you know, and, and you know, the book spends a lot of time talking about uh, looking at past performance. It's not really a good indicator of future results. That's why the SEC makes mutual funds say that because it's true. Uh, so we have to think differently. We have to think about opportunities that maybe we've never thought of before or are familiar with. Uh, in a low return world, every penny will count, and we've got to find ways of of adding value.
0: And uh, any other places people can can find you in your book?
3: Yeah, my publishing company is Palgrave Macmillan. So the best place to get it is at palgrave.com, palgrave dot com p a l g r a v e, and then of course it's available on any of the online book retailers as well. you're so very in your local bookstore. Ask for it.
0: Very good, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time with us to to talk about your your new book. Congratulations. Thanks, Jeremy.
2: Thank Thank you. you. I appreciate
0: it. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Lee Chen, thanks for coming down to the studio, joining me for another great show. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.